everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast, where each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or in memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Kedoshim is an amalgamation of laws, some pertaining to the theological realm, Ben Adam Makom, and others to human interaction, Ben Adam For example, this parsha mentions fearing parents, laws mandating gifts to the poor vis-a-vis crop allowances, the commandment to love one another and not hold grudges, the commandment of Orla, which is not eating for the first three years from fruit trees, proper treatment of the ger, a list of prohibited sexual relationships, the prohibition to consult with oracles, and the list goes on and on. Ultimately, this somewhat chaotic combination of laws reflects the Torah's demand that we sanctify ourselves through the parallel elevation of theological and man-related matters. In other words, our human interactions and our personal policies regarding our sexual relationships and our relationship with the land of Israel all create one package of a divinely lived life. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rabbinit Karen Miller-Jackson, who was a Matan-certified Moral Alecha. She teaches and studies at Matan and is the creator of Power Parsha, a brief Dvar Torah disseminated weekly via social media. She also writes for Matan's Shaila Initiative, an online response program, and is the host of the Eden Center's podcast, Women and Wellbeing, and the founder of Kivun Shirut, a guidance program for religious girls before Shirut Lumi or Army Service. Karen, it's wonderful to finally sit down and talk Torah with you, and what better reason to do so than to speak about Parshat Kedoshim, and specifically about the mitzvah of Ve'avtal Recha Kamocha. Thank you so much, Yosefa. It's wonderful to be here. You know, I always, uh, I really love having the opportunity to connect with other Matan faculty who I otherwise would never have met. For some reason, the distance between Yerushalayim and Ranana feels very, very, very far in this small country of ours. So it's, it's great to have you here. And it's so wonderful to be a part of this wonderful collaboration. So take us in, take us into wherever you want to start from this week's parasha. Okay, so we are going to get to talk about Vahavta Lerecha Kamocha, but we're also going to be focusing on the character of Rabbi Akiva today. And before we do that, we're going to enter the Parsha from the beginning. The Parsha is directed to Kol Adat B'nai Israel, the entire congregation of Israel. And the first words are Kedoshim to you, be holy. And here, what's interesting is that until now, the book of Ayikra has been largely dealing with the Kohanim, the Avodah, the service, and the Mishkan. And now it's taking a very different turn and going outward, going uh, going outside of the Mishkan as well, and uh, turning to all of B'nai Israel. And so here, the concept of Kedushah is expanded and widened. In fact, Rashi, citing the Midrash, which we'll talk about, says that this was read at, this parsha was read at Hakel, the gathering of all of the Jewish people, because much of the Torah is Taluiba, Taluyinba is, is dependent on it. It's a, something about this parsha, this, what we're going to talk about today is essential, is central to Jewish life and to Torah. I mean, I think that, again, this point about this parsha being just this mix of of so many halachot 
that idea of everything here being sensual will come back in Parshat Bihar when we talk about Shemitah being given at Har Sinai. And then we'll also say that Shemitah is also sort of a microcosm of all of Torah. I think, again, all these ideas about speaking that it's all dependent on one another is this idea that the Torah is trying to offer this organic whole. By the way, it's also, I don't know if this is like a provocative thing to say, but I often feel that like a litmus test for halachic observance is that when it feels very disparate and that things don't come together in some sort of organic whole, that there's a sign that something's off. I don't mean in the halachic system. Often it's the way that the halacha is being kept or being disseminated. But I think that ultimately the Torah is often aiming for or trying to create really some sort of very, a very organic way of life. And, and that I think is, is coming through also in that midrash as you're expressing and in this just sort of mishmash of halachot that come through in this week's parasha. That we think as a mishmash, yes. but the Torah clearly doesn't. Exactly, exactly. And I think we can uh, attribute to uh, Rabbi Akiva as possibly one of the main rabbis and sages who spread the notion that this holiness is also amongst us and how we relate to each other in the context of our social interactions. And so we're going to turn to some of the verses. We're going to look specifically at two psukim, which follow uh, in Parshat Kedoshim. Uh, the first one, Lo tisnat achicha bilvavecha, hocheach tochiach et amitecha, velo tisa alavchet. This is a verse which, just to translate, do not hate your brother in your heart, we should rebuke our fellows and um, don't carry any sin uh, along with that. And uh, this is a verse which has come to have new and um, and in particular relevant relevancy in light of this idea of rebuking and um, not to, to harbor hatred in our hearts. I think in the world today, especially if you look at the world of social media, there is almost a campaign often to to rebuke, to call out bad behavior, which can be for the good, but can also uh, sometimes get a little out of control. One of the things I want to highlight in the Parshanut, the interpretation on this verse, is that in the Sifra, the Midrash Sifra, the, which is the Tanaitic Midrash, the Midrash from the Tanaitic period, and also known as Midrash Halacha, the Midrash, the Midrash of Jewish law, uh, here it, it talks about what does it mean to give Tochacha? And the rabbis say amongst them something so heartfelt and, uh, and personal. Rabbi Akiva asks, is there someone who truly knows how to give tochacha in this generation. Rabbi Tarfon as well, his contemporary, asked the same question. And in the end, one rabbi says that, um, that in fact, Rabbi Akiva is the model of how to take tochacha because in, they were in the classroom, in the Beit Midrash, and no matter how much I gave tochacha, I rebuked Rabbi Akiva in class in front of our teacher, Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Akiva and he listened to the words very carefully, Rabbi Kiva not only took it, but knew how to take it in a way which added love in the world. And so here we see a key element in giving rebuke is that it's related to not harboring hatred in our hearts of others. And so Rabbi Kiva seems to be this unbelievable character where most of us would find taking rebuke and criticism quite harshly. Uh, he seems to have had this ability to, to take it in a way where he felt appreciative um, and felt love for, for the other. Halavai yeah, that most people will be able to take criticism like that. It's obviously... Most people's first reaction is defensiveness, but uh, Rabbi Kiva can be a model for a different kind of response. Exactly, exactly. 
And now, just related to this, I want to turn to the next verse. And by the way, some of these interpretations may be well familiar to to many of our listeners. And um, hopefully we're still going to have what what new to add here. But the reason why they're so familiar is because Rabbi Akiva, these interpretations from the Midrash, became so embedded, became so central to the meaning of these verses. And that's why they're so familiar. And so in the next verse, after we hear that one mustn't take revenge, lotikom velotitor et b'neyamecha, that we mustn't take revenge or hold a grudge against um, our fellows. Then it says, v'hafta l'recha kamocha ani Hashem, famously, love your neighbor as yourself, I am Hashem. And here, of course, uh, we have Rabbi Akiva's famous interpretation of Zeklal Gadol Torah. This is the overarching principle of Torah, which again emphasizes the connection to the beginning, which is that there's something more going on here. There's something essential and fundamental in this in this list of mitzvot here in this Parshat Kedoshim. So uh, the other thing I want to highlight is that both of these sources talk about ahava, love. And this is a very interesting dilemma for the interpreters, for the commentaries, because one of the big questions that comes up is, how can we command emotion? How can we say that one should not hate or love others? And this is something that I think uh, Rabbi Akiva was thinking about and working and, and working amongst uh, the, his colleagues on figuring out how to interpret this. And we, we will see that a lot of what's going on and a lot of how this is interpreted is that it's an overarching principle. It's not necessarily that we have to command our emotion, but that by doing all of the mitzvot before and after these words, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, you come to love others more. And hopefully we'll get to look at a few stories about Rabbi Akiva in the Talmud, in, Agada, in the Agadah, which really demonstrate how, um, how this theme really runs through a lot of Rabbi Akiva's life and his interactions with, with others. It's funny also, I think that, you know, in today's modern world and looking more in psychology, we certainly can, we can control how we, how we emote or how we choose to channel those emotions. Uh, I think that, you know, that, that question first comes up, if I recall, in the commandment of Lotachmod, uh, Ibn Ezra has a, has an explanation there that it's, it's really, if, if you haven't seen it, I really recommend looking at it, where he goes on this long treatise about, how can the Torah command us to not covet something, to tell me not to take it or not to go and get involved? That I can understand, but what does that mean? Uh, and he speaks about the way people feel and how a person will only actually desire something if they think it's it's actually available to them, meaning I will never really desire something that belongs to the king because I can never be the king, so it would be pointless for me. And he says that we have to be careful of, is to not actually get to that place where you think that that's an actual option for you. And so he's really sort of speaking about mindset uh, framing, which is something that I think we're more familiar with today, definitely in the last decade and different things that have been written about that. But uh, but I agree with you that that's a really, really significant question, but that the Torah does believe that we can train ourselves. And I think that modern psychology supports that in many ways, meaning how someone feels their internal reaction is one thing, but how you then live your life, which the Torah is really speaking to, it's not just speaking to an emotion, it's speaking to, are you going to live a life of love and appreciation for others? Or are you going to not do that, right? Are you going to harbor negative feelings for them? It's a, it's a, it's a life choice. Uh, my husband and I, by the way, often disagree on this topic. He's much more of an just intuitive. It's not, you can't control everything. And I'm like, no, no, I, th- I think it can be controlled. 
but uh, but that's a great point and an important corollary to the conversation. Yes, definitely. And uh, interestingly, the Ibn Ezra talks about it on as you as you mentioned, and the Midrash really asks the question, and other commentaries as well, I believe by um, the command to love Hashem, the Sifra asks, um, or the Sifra probably asks, um, and how does one come, how can one command? How can one come to command love? And so I think this is this was a key issue for uh, for trying to understand. I think how can we do this? might have been there, by the way. I'll have to double check that. But either way, it's on the stereo, wherever it comes up. And, and it's an essential question, and that's, that's super important. Most definitely. And so I just want to actually take a moment and step back and say I've quoted now the Sifra, the Midrash Sifra, um, a couple of times. And the Midrash Sifra, as we pointed out, is a Tanaitic Midrash, Midrash Halacha. It's from the same time as the Mishnah. And it's doing something very uh, similar but different from the Mishnah in the sense that it's drawing out law, Jewish law, uh, but whereas the Mishnah states the Jewish law without most of the time without quoting the psukim, um, the Midrash Halacha shows how it's derived from the verses. And in the world of academic study of, of this time period, uh, it's been shown that the Midrash Halacha sort of broke up into two different schools. And so there was the uh, famously the books attributed to the school of Rabbi Yishmael, and the books attributed to the school of Rabbi Akiva. And they had different approaches to how they interpreted the, the verses. And um, the Sifra, the one that I quoted earlier, is known to be from the school of Rabbi Akiva. Uh, academics and even also earlier commentaries explored these questions based on some of the material that was in it, which students are quoted the most, what language is used. Uh, and so one of the things we know is that uh, when Rabbi Yishmael interpreted Torah, it was said to be, uh, he often interpreted things. He didn't necessarily see significance in every letter or every word. Sometimes the Torah just spoke, uh, Bilashon B'nai Adam in the language of, of human, of humankind. Whereas Rabbi Akiva's Torah, Rabbi Akiva's approach was that every word and every letter had deep significance. And I, I believe this is also tied, if we're talking about love and Rabbi Akiva, I believe this is also tied to his love of Torah, uh, which, he, which he is said to have come to at an older age. And so we see that the Sifra, which we've quoted until now, it's not just that he was mentioned in it, it's really the Parshanut uh, from his time. One of the challenges when we try to think about Rabbi Akiva is it's not like an interpreter from the Middle Ages or from the modern period where we have an entire text from them and we know a bit more uh, about the history. Uh, Rabbi Akiva's statements are dispersed throughout all of uh, Talmud, Midrash, and so trying to get some picture of his approach and who he was is a bit more difficult, but we, we can try and we can see that there are certain themes that run through these sources, and uh, certainly one of them is is Ava, which is ironic because what what many of you will remember is that in this period of Sfirat HaOmer, uh, one of the things we are mourning is that Rabbi Akiva's 24,000 students didn't treat each other well, didn't treat each other with respect. And, and so there's something really interesting that we have to try and make sense of here, which is this emphasis on and at the same time, how did it come to be that Rabbi Akiva, who is the father of this idea, had such uh, lack of kavod between his students is a, is a very hard thing to swallow. Well, we all know that there's often a gap between 
you know, what one can live very honestly in their life and how that can or cannot be disseminated to students. I actually wanted just to go back for one minute to what you said before uh, regarding Rabbi Shmel and Rabbi Akiva. That debate, um, I just want to share with our audience, has really wide-reaching impact. Um, all of what we'll often consider Parshanei Pshat um, names are familiar would be Ibn Ezra and Bhor uh, Shor and Rashbam uh, and, and Radak, a lot of these uh, French or, uh, or commentators from the area of Provence, that that whole concept of pshat study, its precursors are Vishmael's approach, meaning this concept that or that there can be repetitions, but it, not every single word has to have significance. Um, all of those ideas, or par- right, which we call parallelism when we study different biblical texts, all of those concepts are based on this idea that I don't have to give a commentary to every cross T and dotted I, which is more associated with the school of Brevi Akiva. So that sort of debate, which we call a debate, as you said, because we collate different sources, but it, it's, it's not necessarily presented that way in every source, is something that has a very far-reaching impact because there are two very different ways to look at the Torah. Do I look at it and say every single word has to be explained, which I also think is very connected with Rabbi Akiva coming to learn in a later age, your your sensitivity to nuance of language is heightened because you didn't grow up with it. Uh, I often looked at it like that. Uh, and and whereas a different approach of you sort of grew up with it, so it's it's the language, it's the parlance, and not everything has to have deep significance, is is the outlook of, of somebody who who's grown up surrounded with this language. And Neither of them is is correct or incorrect. Obviously, when they when that debate sort of first erupted, there definitely were sides of the argument. Uh, but today, I think it's just important to understand it as two different ways of looking at Torah. And I do believe that someone can be on the Rabbi Shmuel side and still think that Torah has deep significance. It is still, you know, we could still look at things slightly more broadly or on their whole and still think that Torah is deeply significant. I don't think that one sort of supports Torah more than the other, but just wanted to add that piece to what you were saying before. It's really a topic for, for its own podcast, but it's a very significant point when speaking about Rabbi Kiva in general. So now let's focus on the character of Rabbi Akiva. Let's talk a little bit more about what we know about Rabbi Akiva, who is certainly regarded as perhaps the greatest and most well-known of the rabbinic sages. Surprisingly, we know that Rabbi Akiva only came to start learning Torah at age 40. Uh, several sources attest to this. Uh, in particular, one midrash called Avot Rabbi Natan, which is a sort of post-Talmudic midrash on Pirkei Avot, and uh, contains some really interesting stories about different Chachamim. And here we learn that Rabbi Akiva, many people know the famous story that Rabbi Akiva went to learn Torah because he fell in love with Rachel, the daughter of Kalba Savua, and she said, go learn Torah, I'll marry you if you go learn Torah. Uh, the version in Avot Rabbi Natan does not have that at all in the story. And in fact, it says that Rabbi Akiva, he, he was married, it seems, to Rachel uh, already and had a child already. But he came to learn Torah 
because he had a certain revelation as he was looking at a bear at a well and noticing that the water had worn the rock down over time. And he says to himself, how can something like water so, so thin and light uh, engrave and have an impact on something so hard as rock? Rabbi Akiva then realized on his own intuitively, he uses the tool of Kalva Homer, where he says to himself, well, if the water, which is so light and delicate, can engrave the stone, can have an impact on the stone at the well, then certainly Torah, which is strong material, can engrave my heart. And so it's interesting that this, this revelation that Rabbi Kiva has, that he wants to go learn Torah, happens by a well. Yosefa, you as a scholar of Tanakh, of course, have the association of, of a be'er, of a well, with biblical love scenes. And so here, what is the love? What is Rabbi Kiva falling in love with? He's falling in love with Torah. And so we have once again mm. the theme of love associated with Rabbi Akiva and the image of him falling in love with Torah. It's also and interesting so, because when we talk about these these biblical love scenes, anyone who wants to read more about that, it's sort of it's in Midrash, completely in Midrash, and there's also a very big exploration of it in Robert Alter's uh The Art of Biblical Narrative. But what's really beautiful about that is that when you take these different, what he calls type scenes, you compare them to see the differences between them. And it often reflects the relationship that's then created afterwards. And it's fascinating because Rabbi Kiva in many ways chooses Torah over his wife, um, maybe with her permission, but meaning what's, for example, with Yitzchak, he doesn't actually have a well scene. His Evet Avraham has the well scene where he goes and meets Rivka. And that's very symbolic of the fact that also Yitzchak will not be a very present figure, that there's something more passive about him, about his interactions with the world. And so that's really beautiful that Rabbi Kiva is well seen here, obviously continuing the biblical paradigm, is with Torah and not with a woman, uh, because in many ways he chooses Torah over his wife. That's great. Yes, and we're going to get to that in a moment. This poses a problem for Rabbi Akiva because he has this love of Torah, but he also, uh, we know, has a special relationship with his wife. And there's a tension here. And this tension is mentioned by a number of scholars of the Talmud and Talmudic Agadah. I'd say the one who draws it out most significantly is my my uh, teacher of mine, uh, Professor Jeffrey Rubinstein, who writes about in his book, The Culture of the Babylonian Talmud, writes that this was something that was an essential issue, uh, especially in the agadic stories of the rabbis as they're presented in the Talmud Bavli. He shows how it's 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 um, emphasized in the Talmud Bavli much more than the other versions of these stories of rabbis' relationships with their wives or their homes. There is a famous sugya in Masachet Ketubot, where we have a series of seven stories about rabbis and their relationships with their wives, some very tragic. Uh, and uh, Rabbi Akiva, of course, we hear in that story, goes away from his wife for 12 years. He actually goes away and then comes back in the middle and overhears that that his wife said, you know, if only he'd go back and learn more Torah, and then he comes back again. Uh, and there it has a happy ending in the sense that his wife is, uh, you know, it's almost a sort of fantasy <laughs> that that one should feel so supported. But especially if you start at age 40, you know, it's hard to become such a great Torah scholar without spending uh, all that time devoted and learning Torah. 
But at the end, he has the famous phrase, Shali v'shalachem shalach, mine and yours is hers. And so it's really all shared that she has a share in this, in this Torah learning, uh, which fits with the Bavli version of her having sent him off to learn. And so the rabbis themselves struggled with, with this sort of work-life balance that, that we call it today. But um, really, it's about their love and devotion to Torah and how to make everything else fit in with that. So now, uh, to bring our conversation to a close, I want to turn to one final story. There are many stories of Rabbi Akiva, but we're highlighting just a few. I want to talk about the, the story of Rabbi Akiva and three of his rabbinic colleagues going into the Pardes, literally the orchard, but associated with the sort of beginnings and kernels of Jewish mysticism. The ideas it's presented in the Tosefta and the Talmud Bavli Chagiga is that Rabbi Akiva and three others go into this, go very close to Hashem, go very close to God in their, whether it's some sort of meditation or however they are reaching that high level through their learning and spirituality. And all the others come out uh, in some way damaged. Whereas Rabbi Akiva is the only one who's nichnas b'shalom ve'yatzah b'shalom. He's able to, he goes in, in peace and he comes out in peace. And here, interestingly, we see that Rabbi Akiva had the ability to come close to the holiest levels and to God and come back out and bring that to the people. The Lubavitcher Rebbe calls this the attribute of Ratzovashuv, to be able to run to uh, the spiritual and come back out again and connect with the world. And I want to I want to connect this back to what we saw today with Vahaftalarachakamocha. That Rabbi Akiva, I think, his greatest contribution uh, is to emphasize that the mitzvot bein adam how we treat others, uh, the interpersonal mitzvot have incredible spirituality and holiness to them. Kedoshim to you. And we see that as he was able to go in in peace and bring out the Kedusha to the world, that this becomes his life mission. Uh, of course, after his tragedy of the students dying, he builds up again and has new students and builds up his world again. And I think Rabbi Akiva's life, in a way, is the, is the, is the story of the Jewish people and inspires people as they go through different times in their lives with difficulties and emerging from that. Uh, and so hopefully we can all draw a little bit of inspiration from Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Akiva's interpretation in how we think about our human relationships and love and our values. It's also really interesting how uh, Rabbi Akiva's life in many ways represents extremes. Uh, there are tremendous poles that are expressed in in the way his life uh, happened and obviously a tremendous shift that happens at a late age and in many years away from family. And I think that the anger of him as being the the promulgator of is sort of, it's kind of separates him from a Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai figure, right? Where he is this extreme figure, but had a, a hard time reintegrating into the world. Rabbi Kiva sort of represents this figure of someone who can touch all of the, the most extreme places, whether it's the Pardis, right? Or it's the Yeshiva where you're away from your family, but that he also retains his connection with the world. I don't think we would call him a moderate, right? That wouldn't be the correct appellation to describe Rabbi Akiva, but there's something in his his character, which I think is why we continue talking about him generation after generation, is because he represents somebody who, even though he went to those extreme places, that he was able 
to sort of bring it together in something that still resonated or felt that it that it fit uh, with the broader world. So I think that you've done a great job today of sort of highlighting maybe Kiva's character and, and, and its anchor in this week's parasha. And I thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk with you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.